We'd like to think that if something terrible happens to us, the truth will come out and justice will prevail. But what if your life is worth only a few years behind bars for your killer and they're released only to kill again? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. Christina Everett, how are you doing this week? Mr. Phelps, I am doing pretty well. Enjoying the fall weather. How about you? How goes it over in Connecticut? It's crisp here. Very crisp. The frost has showed up. Ava doesn't like it. My Labrador. I don't mind it. Do you put sweaters on her? I do not dress up my animals. And people who do that, I put them in the- That's a whole other episode because I think you're on the same page with that as well. Oh, good. They have natural fur coats. Exactly. And Halloween costumes and Christmas and you're torturing the poor animal. You're embarrassing (laughs) them. So I want to share something with you, actually. I watched perhaps one of the best documentaries that I have seen this year. That's saying a lot if it's coming from you, I'll tell you that. It's called Attica, and it is a harrowing look at the 1971 riot that occurred at the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York. I just picture Al Pacino from the movie. Absolutely, and and that's what I think a lot of people know, but the story, I don't think people realize what it exactly is, and so this documentary was mind-blowing. You know, for those who aren't familiar, the event was a five-day standoff between state police and Attica prisoners who rioted and they took control of the prison. They even took 42 members of the staff hostage. The inmates were demanding changes to be made to the prison's court conditions, including just this blatant outright racism and dehumanizing treatment by the guards. A bloody raid ensued and resulted in 43 deaths, and it remains one of the bloodiest prison rebellions in U.S. history. It has fascinating archive footage in this documentary. Ah, I love that. As well as interviews with the surviving inmates who give like a play-by-play of what happened. You know, and we've discussed this before, Phelps, where viewers get really uncomfortable with seeing really graphic images. And this is a warning to anyone who wants to see it. This documentary includes horrific still photographs of the event's aftermath. They're gory, they're grotesque. It's alarming, but I feel it's really important to still see the brutal, inhumane way that the prisoners were treated. 100% behind that. And if this sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend it. It's been out in select theaters in major cities for a couple weeks now, but it just also premiered on Showtime over the weekend, so you can watch it at home now. Well, there's Everett with another recommendation for a disturbing, bloody, violent (laughs) thing to watch on true crime television. Oh, no. And how excited she was while she's talking about this. It was just so good. It was disturbing and moving. And it's such a big moment in U.S. history. And I think there's been a lot of moments like that in the past couple of years. And so it was another one of those moments like, why didn't they teach us this in school? Like, why am I learning about this now through a documentary? Yeah, I'm glad you're learning about it and that the public can learn about it so we can see how people are treated. And I think it has a little bit maybe to do with today's episode. There's the topic of prison reform and police brutality. It's a little connected. Yeah, it definitely is connected. So this week, I want to talk about this murder memory I have. Have you ever had one of those, Everett? Can't say that I have, no. Really? I almost think everybody has someone in their past, even a couple of degrees separation, who's been murdered. But 
You know, lately I can't stop thinking about this one day in high school. It was April 1983. I was 16, a junior. Actually, that was the year that I quit high school, but that's for another time. There was this girl who sat next to me in class, Sherry Ann Merton. We were the same age and we had known each other since like sixth grade at least. Sherry actually had a crush on me in middle school, from what I can remember. We went, quote, out for a bit. You held hands. <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit more, I think. You know <laughs> you know how you kind of said, well, you go out with me and then... Yeah, check yes, check no. Yeah, and then you were going <laughs> out, you know? Right. I remember that she was this girl that everyone liked. And, and I don't mean that as the cliched neighbor. It was true. She was just a sweet person, positive, happy all the time. Then one day she didn't come to school. Oh, no. Wait, hold on. What is it with where you grew up? With Paper Ghosts, you grew up in this town where all the girls went missing. What happened to your sister-in-law and now your own classmate? You know, I never really looked at it that way. But to summarize a line from this indie band that I really like, Lord Huron. Yeah. The dead seemed to follow me around. I don't know. I just... I noticed more, maybe. I, I just assume most have similar memories that, you know, there's this one person or two people from their childhood or their teenage years that was murdered. No, not for me, at least. I mean, I don't have anything like yours or your stories. Not even a few degrees separation? You don't remember? I mean, you grew up in Hollywood. I also, I feel like I grew up in a bubble, to be honest. It was very protected. I think that's what it is. Yeah, and... No offense, different generations. Why would I be offended by that? Because I'm very, very young, much younger than you. Yeah, no, you're not. No, don't, yes, I have. No, shut I'm, up. I'm, Just I'm, let, I'm me not, get, let me have that. I'm not allowing you Just... to get away with that. <laughs> no, but no, there was nothing like that for me. There are like deaths from car accidents and whatnot over the years, but nothing as sordid as the stories that I've heard you tell me. I don't think it's regional, as maybe you're trying to suggest. I don't think there's any explanation for this other than it just is what it is, you know? Yeah. I remember this very vividly. I woke up one morning when I was living in Vernon, and I was I was young, you know, young teen. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing my neighbors, my direct neighbors, outside walking the street, kind of circling, and just, they looked dazed. So I went out there, and... My neighbor's sister, her husband had stabbed her to death. What? Yep. No, I'd never heard that from you before. That's disturbing. The stabbing didn't occur next door, but it was my neighbor and it happened not far away. Wow. I want to say it was right around the time of this case, the Sherry Ann Merton case. Well, what ended up happening with your classmate? She left home one night and she didn't come back. I thought we knew right away what happened to her. She was a bit rebellious and prone to taking off. A lot of us kids were at that time, at that age, from my area. You know, we'd just do what we wanted to do. In my case, I had no, oh God, I'm going to hear about this. I had no parental supervision, you know, so <laughs> it was easy for me, but others did. So is that what she did? She ran away? This time she didn't. Sherry's mother reported her missing, said she'd left her house the previous night about 7.30 and had not returned. And this is even though she was known to run away. The mother thought this was different. There was hmm. no word from her. She didn't contact anybody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mother's intuition. Exactly. Trust that. So Sherry's mother told the police that Sherry was supposed to go over to her girlfriend's house that night 
but never made it. She had instead been dropped off at these train tracks in a secluded area several miles from her home in Vernon. I lived by these tracks. It's called Rails to Trails now. Do you know where she would have been going then? Yeah, she was headed over to her ex-boyfriend's house. So two police officers headed over to the abandoned railroad tracks and started looking around. This is Investigation 101, the last place she's dropped off, they start looking. And it didn't take them long to find Sherry's mutilated body. She had been strangled and stabbed several times in the neck. Oh, God. I want to say, too, I've recently seen these crime scene pics, and honestly, I was distraught afterwards. I had not seen a picture of Sherry in, like, 35 years. The photos are extremely comprehensive, especially graphic, and maybe that's because I knew her? It's kind of surreal how I ran into this case again after all these years. I was actually over at the Vernon Police Department for us, for you and I, Everett. Mm -hmm. I was looking for something that we needed in the cold case room. And for whatever reason, I mean, her case isn't cold. I'm looking through files and bang, I see Sherry Merton. And it just, it all comes back to me, you know? And I open this and one of the first things I see are those eight by 12 photographs of her. And I, I it just, it was the last thing I expected to see that morning. Here's the part of this that is bothersome to me. We were on the bus that day. We drove by the tracks that day and she was right there. We just didn't know it. So were there any obvious people in her life that the police immediately suspected? Once we heard where she had been dropped off at this kid's house, we all knew. The ex-boyfriend? Yeah. His name is Corey Barton. Outcast, I don't think is the right word. Quiet, loner. You know, he always had this disheveled look. He thought he was a badass. Always angry. He also was that kid in school who you looked at and said, he's stuck in ninth grade forever because he appeared much older. You know what I'm saying? There's always that one kid in high school who is like, yeah, that kid's an adult, you know, and he's still in high school. I used to personally run into him in the woods by my house because it was an area that was between our houses and there was a little tiny lake there, the tank, as we called it. <laughs> we all hung out there. We drank there. We had fires. You know, we had keg parties. I don't know what Sherry ever saw in him. I, I wasn't paying too much attention then because of my own life was imploding at the time. But I do remember quite emphatically when she was seen with him, her girlfriends were like, you know, WTF. I mean, wh why him? Because he's that weirdo kid nobody wanted to go near. I mean, my guess is that she just wanted to go after the bad boy. Maybe. The rebellious kid. Maybe. I, I think part of it is she might have felt sorry for him. And then once she mm. fell for him, you know, she was into him. So then did the cops go question him? Yeah, of course. As I was thinking about covering this case, I went and got all the official documents to find out exactly what happened. Because I just don't want to go on my memory, obviously. So after Sherry's mother gave them Corey Barton's name, the cops called him at school the next day for an interview. And this is what I find interesting. In the police report, it describes him as being, quote, very calm and polite. It says Corey claimed Sherry called him at 730 the previous night, but that he was adamant he did not see her that night. Okay, so the phone call at least lines up with what Sherry's mom was saying that. Right. She got a call around that time and left her house to go see her supposed girlfriend. Right. 
There was a family friend who confirmed this to police because he was the one who gave Sherry a ride to her girlfriend's house that night, except he said he had dropped Sherry off near those abandoned tracks around 9 p.m. The tracks were near the friend's house, and Sherry insisted on being dropped off there instead. Interesting. See, I see both sides to the situation because, like, as a teen— I always had my dad drop me off down the street or around the corner from a friend's house or from the movie theater because it was just so embarrassing to get dropped off by an adult, you know? But then now, as an adult, why get dropped off at such a sketchy kind of place? I understand what you're saying. And I think that Sherry's parents knew that Corey was a bad boy and didn't want her to see him. So I think that's the reason why she was dropped off up the street at her friend's house. One detail about the crime scene, Sherry's coat was placed over her face by her killer. This immediately tells me that her killer knew her. Yeah, it's personal. Yeah, we see this in cases where mothers kill their children. You know, they put a blanket over them or a stuffed animal by their side. So going back to the ex-boyfriend, what did the cops do to follow up? Well, they couldn't do much right away because Corey hightailed it out to his father's house in a different town about 45 minutes away from Vernon. So... The state police had to get involved. They called him at his father's house. His father tells them that his son is not talking to anyone per his attorney's advice. Red flag. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't he want to help? Right. I mean, why the fuck wouldn't you want to help find someone that you purportedly loved or, you know, were going with or, or worried about? Yeah. So by now, the cops are focused on Corey Barton. They know that he did it. It's pretty damn obvious. And you said earlier that it wasn't a surprise to you, right? Yeah. I, I mean, once we heard she had been murdered, where she was found, it's like he did it. I mean, he lives houses away from there. He was going with her. He's a time bomb. Here's the thing. A few people reported that Corey liked to carry around a big knife. I could add myself to that list as well, because I remember him not being afraid to let you know he had a knife when you saw him in the woods. He was oh, that God. kid. God, freaky. It was clear in gym class or whenever he got into a fight, he had this volcanic rage in him. It came out a few times. He would just snap, start screaming, and then a burst of anger. Would he ever get into like physical fights with people? Yeah, all the time. It, like, it makes me wonder now, like, was he like that with Sherry? Exactly. I mean, previous behavior is a good indication of future behavior. The cops learned from a friend of Sherry's that Corey Barton slapped Sherry on the day before she was murdered. Mm. Two others who knew Corey asked him at school the day after she went missing if he had seen her. His response, quote, she's not coming home. She is dead on the tracks. She was hit by a car, end quote. What the hell? First of all, how does a car hit you on the tracks? Obviously, the car hit her and a knife flew out the window and stabbed her four times in the neck. Correct. Obvious. Yeah. I'd never said that he was the sharpest tool in the, in the shed. <laughs> right. I never said that. Wow. Also, in an interview with police, Sherry's mother recalled a conversation with Corey's aunt in which the aunt stated something to the effect that Corey hated his mother and that Sherry reminded him of her. Ooh. Guy's got issues. So this is telling me that Corey projected that rage and hatred onto an innocent girl. And he knew exactly what he was doing. By April 22nd, 1983, 17-year-old Corey Barton is arrested and charged with the murder of Sherry Ann Merton. He waived his right to remain silent and began to talk. 
and I was able to get his taped confession. So we will hear a bit of that after the break, and then there's this major remarkable twist in this case. So I want to give you the quick and dirty about murder confessions. Believe half of what you hear and know that the killer is going to blame their victim and place the onus on the victim. It's always somebody else's fault. They will always downplay their role in whatever they did. In his tape confession to Vernon Police, Corey Barton explained that Sherry called him, said she wanted to meet up at, quote, the tracks to have sex and talk. Once there, he said they had sex, got dressed, started walking. So let's listen to the confession tape and let Corey explain what happened next. And then afterwards, when we came down, we were talking about going back out. And I told her that I didn't want to. And she took the knife out. They started swinging it, and I tried to grab it from her. And I couldn't get it, so I strangled her. She took the knife out. What, what do you mean by that? Were you wearing a knife? No, I wasn't. You was? What do you mean by she took the knife out? She had it in her coat. In her coat? Yeah. How did she get the knife? I guess she took it from me, because I had it up in my room Wednesday, and she came over to bring me a school book. So the guy who's known for carrying around the big knife is now claiming that the victim brought her own? Yeah, sure, buddy. It's absolute bullshit. The knife was his. Corey claimed that Sherry stole the knife from his house and that as she swung it at him, she slipped and fell and he was able to then get on top of her. I can say with clarity from memory that this kid was tough. I would have never fucked with this kid and I was tough. And what about Sherry? Sherry was petite. I mean, she was tiny. She was a tough girl, yes. And for her to swing a knife at him, no freaking way. That wasn't the Sherry that I recall. So he's basically just tampering this all down by trying to position it as if it was like the struggle between him and Sherry. Was Sherry being the aggressor? He's trying to say it was self-defense. When you uh, were fighting over the knife, were you standing, sitting, laying on the ground? We were standing at first. And then what happened? She fell. And I went down to When you strangled her, was she laying on the ground? Yeah. Were you on top of her? Yeah. How were you uh, laying down, kneeling down on top of her? I was kneeling. Kneeling on her body? No. Not over. Over her? And you stabbed her. Was she uh, still struggling? Yeah. She still was? Did you... Uh, Put you called over her? Yes. When I was, when I, before, just before I left, I did. Did you stab her before you put the code over? No, I don't think so. I put the code over before I stabbed her. Why did you do that? I just did. First of all, the three stab wounds in her neck are methodical and nearly perfectly placed, one after the other, along her jugular. I saw the photos. This wasn't random. He, boom, boom, boom. And then what happened? I left. Did you go directly home? Yeah. What'd you do then? We went inside and got a flashlight and bucket and 
wasn't looking for nightcrawlers. Oh, the time was that? That I started? Yes. I guess it was around quarter of nine. Did you uh, clean or wash the knife at all? Cool. I tried to, yes. You tried to? There was blood on the knife? Yeah. Where did you wash it? In the house. What did you do with the knife? I brought it up to my room. Did he really say that he went home to his aunt's house nearby, searched for night crawlers, and then went inside for the night? I mean, th- those details alone just tell me how weird this kid is. Yeah, Everett. I mean, you stab a girl, you strangle her, and then you go nightcrawler hunting. You're showing signs of being a sociopath. So let's fast forward to Corey Barton's trial. I can't help but think about Sherry's parents. And I've met her parents over the years, but your 16-year-old daughter is murdered. Her killer gets 18 years as a juvenile, but serves only nine years, eight months. What? Would you then be enraged by the system? Is that really all Sherry's killer got? He served under 10 years for killing Sherry Merton. And not only killing her, violently killing her. Oh my God. Stabbing and strangling her. And what does he do? He gets out of prison, moves to another state, and then guess what? He kills his new girlfriend. No. Are you kidding me? Previous behavior is a good indication of future behavior. You're going to hear me say that over and over on this show because, oh my God, it's true. Did he get time for that? He then pleads down his case from what should have been a capital murder charge to second degree murder, getting him 23 years to 28 years in prison. Unreal. So let's go through some of the case details real quick. So this article from 2000 about the sentencing of Corey Barton for the murder of his girlfriend. Just before Thanksgiving 1998, Barton became enraged and beat his girlfriend Sally Harris to death with a piece of their baby's crib. And then the guy is gifted two years off his sentence for time served after his second murder arrest. Okay, wait, that's disgusting to first find out that Besides the murder, their six-month-old baby was in the room and saw the whole thing. I mean, that's basically what happened to Dexter as a kid, I'm just saying. Well, we could argue Corey Barton is a serial killer. He's killed two over a span of years. Mm-hmm. And if he gets out again, my guess is he might kill again. Let's take a look at the bigger picture, though, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this. Because our judicial system is really run by idiots in some circumstances who place so little value on human life, it just, it enrages me. It's in need of desperate repair if we are going to honor and place the focus on the victims. I mean, that's what we want to do, right? Because right now, as we stand, murderers, pedophiles, rapists, they get the breaks, not those whose lives they destroy. We see this time and again. Judges have far too much power to do what they want which is sometimes not in the victim's family's best interests or the public's. Let's take a beat right now and take a quick break and we'll be right back. Knowing that we were going to discuss this today, I did some research and found some interesting facts about sentencing from the DOJ. Persons sentenced to murder served an average of 15 years in state prison before their initial release. Most violent offenders released from state prison in 2016 served less than three years in prison before their initial release. State prisoners initially released in 2016 served an average of 62% of their sentence if they were serving time for rape or sexual assault. 62%. 
Yeah. And 96% of violent offenders released in 2016, including 70% of those sentenced for murder or non-negligent manslaughter, served less than 20 years before their initial release from state prison. And then you have these guys serving life who didn't even do it. Right. It's really messed up. Look at the numbers you just read. Let's just take a minute and think about that. If you're listening, go back and listen to those numbers again and become enraged about that because you should be. That is just amazing. Well, here are some interesting counterpoint research that I also found. This one is from sentencingproject.org. The number of people serving life sentences endures even while serious violent crime has been declining for the past 20 years. One in seven people in prison are serving life with parole, life without parole, or virtual life, which is 50 years or more. So you want to commit murder, and I'm not recommending anybody do that, please. Connecticut is a state to do it because you will serve even less than the average amount of years people spend in prison for murder. Maybe that's why all the bad things happen around where you live then. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's a good observation, Everett. Hold on a second. This this article that you sent me about Corey Barton stuff, it's from 2000, but it says that his release date could be sometime in 2021. His projected release date is November 12th, 2021, like as in a couple days from now. That's exactly what the prison website where he's spending his time says, that Corey Barton is going to be out of prison after killing two women violently. One he stabbed to death and strangled. The other he beat with a bar from a a crib. So this scumbag is going to be out of prison again and walking the streets. So knowing this, like, what can we do besides raise awareness that this is happening? Like, what are some actionable steps we can take? Something needs to change. You murder somebody, you take a life, you give up your life, whether it's in prison or in the ground. If you stab somebody to death, you strangle them. And then 20 years later, you do it again and you're walking out of prison. There's something wrong. Can we elect new people? Hell yes, we can. I think that's what we can do. We're doing our part by pointing this out, I think, in this episode and really, really just throwing this out there. And I really do blame judges for this. Parole boards, too. That shit needs to change. Minorities are in prison on drug offenses for longer than a guy who murders two women. There's something wrong. Something needs to be done. Corey Barton could spend another... I think, five years in prison. Him serving the 28 years and not getting out this week, who's that going to hurt? It's going to hurt nobody. You know what, though? It could save somebody. Right. That's what it could do. So with my rage back in check, that's all for today. We'll see you here next week. Stay classy, Connecticut. Watch your back. Sources for today's episode come from an article from WRAL.com titled Victims, Family, and Friends Outraged by Plea Bargain Sentencing from October 2000, and a time-served-in-state-prison report by Daniel Cable from the DOJ's Office of Justice Programs. And special thanks to Sherry Ann Merton's parents, co-founders of Survivors of Homicide, a nonprofit group based in Connecticut that provides members free services, including one-on-one counseling, support groups across the state, and support navigating the often complicated process of hearings, motions, trials, and appeals that make up a murder case. For more information, go to survivorsofhomicide.com. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. 
It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.